Welcome to Near East PolicyCast. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. After a surprising presidential election, Americans and foreign leaders have closely watched the executive transition for clues to American priorities and policy under the Trump administration. What does Donald J. Trump's victory tell us about American politics, and how will our allies and adversaries respond? And I was reminded of what a famous Israeli pollster told me uh, way back, that in Israel, uh, people tell the truth to pollsters, then they lie when they vote. Uh, and Countries don't seek commitments for the easy times. You don't need a commitment in the easy times. You need a commitment for the hard times. You need a commitment for the crunch. You need, when you're, in a, when you're facing what is a potential devastation, you need to know that your friend is actually there. Today, we'll hear from two experts with deep understandings of American politics and the inner workings of both foreign policy and presidential transitions, recorded at a special Washington Institute Forum on November 11, 2016. Norman Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, election analyst for BBC News, and co-author of the 2012 book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. Then, we'll hear from Ambassador Dennis Ross, counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute. Ambassador Ross served in the administrations of five presidents from both parties and has been closely involved in several presidential transitions, both from Republican to Democrat and Democrat to Republican, since 1988. First, Norman Ornstein. After this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. So I'm uh, organizing all of my thoughts on everything that's followed uh, from uh, the last few days. I confess that I was among those who was pretty confident going into election eve and indeed until 8 or 9 o'clock that Hillary Clinton was going to win. Uh, Now, I wrote a piece uh, back a few months ago in the Times called Stop the Polling Insanity, Uh, and uh, we have real problems in the polling world, but the polling averages have tended to be reasonably good, and there we had uh, some pretty overwhelming numbers, including in some of these pivotal states that Trump uh, ended up winning. Uh, actually, uh, we also know that uh, even based on the exit polls and the polls going in, that uh, Trump clearly got more support. There was the equivalent this time of what we used to call the Bradley effect, uh, based on uh, the time when Tom Bradley, a very popular African-American mayor of Los Angeles, ran for governor. Polls showed him winning comfortably, and he lost. And some of the research afterwards suggested that People were uncomfortable telling a pollster face-to-face or over the phone uh, that they weren't going to vote for an African-American. So we had a bit of a Bradley effect. And actually, uh, this time, uh, probably more among uh, the more highly educated uh, white women who had said they were going to vote for Clinton. And I was reminded of what a famous Israeli pollster told me uh, way back, that in Israel, uh, people tell the truth to pollsters. Then they lie when they vote. So now we're faced with a Trump presidency. I've tried to reassure people not to worry too much. Within a couple of months, he'll leave us for a younger country. Uh, 
so uh, I want to just try and lay a little election context and then talk about uh, what I would see as some of the best case and worst case scenarios for where we may be. Uh, as I have talked over many months about uh, American politics, I said keep in mind two two-word phrases, angry populism and partisan tribalism. And both are even more significant uh, now. Uh, we had a unique campaign in many respects. We had two candidates whose approval rating, uh, ratings were underwater. We've never had that before. Two candidates more unpopular than popular. And that made a difference. What also made a difference was an unbridled contempt for Washington that had been built up over many years. And a lot of that, I would say, was a very direct and explicit strategy of Republicans in Washington through the Obama presidency that worked like a charm in winning midterm elections. Because it wasn't just based on blocking what President Obama wanted. It was on delegitimizing the president and the political system and everything that went on in Washington and exploiting that angry populism of the Tea Party movement out there, which brought them unprecedented majorities in Congress in 2010 and another big victory in 2014, and then came back to bite them during the Republican presidential nominating process when they ended up with a slew of candidates who they really didn't particularly want to emerge, but those who ran against their own leadership as much as they did uh, uh, against Democrats, and keep in mind that we ended up with two viable candidates with a chance of winning a nomination. Donald Trump, the outsider's outsider, and Ted Cruz, the insider's outsider, whose calling card was going on the Senate floor and calling his own leader, Mitch McConnell, a liar. So that was the nature of those politics. And when you have that kind of contempt for Washington that's built up among people as they see everything falling apart and nothing working, the idea that this guy may have all kinds of problems, but how could anything be worse than what we've got now resonated with people? And the sense that he didn't know anything about policy, that he had never been involved in government, just was brushed aside uh, because the insiders had done so badly. Now, you can't look at what's going on out there without also realizing that the angry populism has real roots. Real roots because we have had for a very significant period of time, growing and stark inequality with a group at the top, the 1% and the one-tenth of 1%, who not only have benefited through difficult economic times for people, were bailed out by those elites in Washington and given bonuses, living lives of incredible conspicuous consumption, and viewing themselves as the victims because people weren't viewing them as heroes through all of this, while we have a working class that has struggled for a very long time with stagnant wages and with the economic collapse in 2008, either lost their houses or saw their houses decline by 40 or 50 percent in value, most Americans do not have savings in the bank. Their savings, their nest egg is the home. That's what they have to take care of their kids or to look forward to in retirement, and it was devastated. People got either lost their jobs or got stuck in dead-end jobs where their employers knew they had nowhere to go and so could exploit them more. You're going to work longer hours and you're not going to get any more pay. So the anger from that 
which manifested itself on the left with the Occupy Wall Street movement and on the right with the Tea Party movement, was there and is there. Now, with all of that, it's also important to remember that this time around, partly because the two candidates were both underwater, we did not have a high turnout election. That anger did not fuel record turnout. There was a significant drop-off from 2012, an even more significant drop-off from 2008, and it was greater among Democrats than it was among Republicans. There was a lack of enthusiasm for both candidates. And in the end, I expected that the margins were going to tighten because of that second factor, partisan tribalism. People now both identify with their own party as a tribe, but more significantly, as a lot of research has shown, we are driven by negative partisanship. It is the hatred for the other side and the belief that they are evil that makes a difference. Now, I'll mention one other thing, which clearly was a factor, and that was the Comey letter, the first Comey letter in particular. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that that made the difference in the presidential election, but I would suggest that it made the difference in the Senate and very possibly in the House. Campaigns have momentum to them, and they matter. And the fact is Hillary Clinton and the Democrats were on the upswing two weeks out from the election because the stories, the focus of the campaign was on Donald Trump's moral failings and uh, other qualities that were abhorrent to a lot of people. And for Republicans running for the Senate and the House, they were in an excruciatingly difficult position. You had a core of ardent supporters for Trump. Abandon him and you will suffer a backlash. Don't abandon him and you lose a lot of voters in the middle. And if you look at uh, the uh, acrobatics of some of the candidates out there, take uh, Jason Chaffetz, for example, who supported Donald Trump weekly, and then after the Access Hollywood tape came out, said, I'm withdrawing my support. How can I look my 15-year-old daughter in the eye again with a monster like this? And then a couple of weeks later, gave back his support. And I wrote, I felt sorriest for anyone in the country uh, for his daughter because her father can never again look her in the eye. But that was a fairly typical kind of response. And then all of a sudden, the traction was back for them because the focus was on Hillary Clinton and the emails and what other scandals might be out there and so on. And if you look at a couple of Senate races in Missouri where Roy Blunt was behind and then barely edged out uh, Jason Kander, and you look in North Carolina where uh, Richard Burr was behind and then barely edged out Deborah Ross. Just take those two races, and if they'd gone the other way, the Democrats would have a majority in the Senate. And then think about this. Even if Donald Trump gets elected, from January 6th to January 20th, we have a new Senate. It's a Democratic Senate. And that Democratic Senate would have confirmed Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court before Donald Trump came in. So for 30 or 40 years, very likely, dramatic changes in social policy and in other ways because of the Comey letter. So now let me talk for a few minutes uh, about what we have looking ahead with unified Republican government. And I want to say first, 
One of the interesting things here is if you are in the minority, uh, in, uh, which means in this case, even if you have uh, one house or both houses of Congress, you don't have the White House. You can't enact policy on your own. And in some ways, that's a pretty easy and good position to be in because you can propose all kinds of things that sound good, that will be great for your base, but will never get enacted into law. Or you can say things that have no bearing. So you can say, I hate Obamacare. We're going to repeal and replace it. And then vote 60 times to repeal it without ever offering a plan to replace it. Or you can do a budget that says you're going to balance in five years because you're going to do all of these things, the tax cuts that will bring in massive amounts of revenue, and you're going to cut all these programs, but we're not exactly going to tell you which programs we're going to cut, and we'll do across-the-board reductions that may have no bearing on reality, but what does it matter? Because it's basically just a symbolic statement. Now we have a situation that's very much like the dog chasing the bus who catches it. What do you do now? And so in a lot of ways, coming up with an economic policy that will actually work, coming up with a health care plan that will actually work, making those policies fit together, and in particular, doing things that are not going to benefit the 1% at the expense of those working class voters who voted for Donald Trump because he was for them, this is going to be a very difficult challenge. And it's a particularly difficult challenge because the House and the Senate are very different bodies, and we are going to have a Republican House that, even though they didn't lose very many members, is still uh, pretty much in the thrall of the Freedom Caucus. And whoever is Speaker, if Paul Ryan decides to move ahead uh, and go in that direction, will not be able to count on unity. And a Senate, which will have probably very different ideas, and at least for the moment, although uh, when it comes to Supreme Court nominees, that will change, the filibuster remains in place, and that gives Democrats some ability to block legislative actions from going forward. So, best case. One can imagine, first, that Donald Trump's proposal for a robust, indeed massive, infrastructure plan, twice as big as the one that Hillary Clinton proposed, will now go forward. And unless it has a number of things that are really uh, unpalatable or obnoxious added to them, you can imagine something that will in fact provide a sizable engine for the economy and you could finance it in a fashion that was accepted in a broad bipartisan way in this past Congress but never got anywhere, which is in significant part by repatriating profits from companies abroad with the proviso that a sizable share be invested in 50-year low-interest infrastructure bonds with some uh, public involvement as well. And that will create a significant number of high-value jobs for working-class people that could make a real difference. One can imagine, in a best-case scenario, that we actually resolve the health care problem. And in that case, it would be the Republicans repealing Obamacare and replacing it with Obamacare. <laughs> with... Uh, a few options, a moonroof, uh, AM, FM radio, um, but basically you can repeal the uh, employer mandate, which was never going to work, 
uh, you can make for some stronger risk corridors. And now you might well find Republican governors deciding that it would be worth their while to expand Medicaid. That would be the best case scenario. The best case scenario in foreign policy is you outsource it to Bob Corker, who is a mainstream, reasonable, and solid figure. And you have a president who may very well outsource most policymaking, because it's not his bag, and act as the uh, non-executive uh, chairman of the board uh, with Mike Pence as the chief operating officer uh, for domestic affairs and Bob Corker uh, for uh, international affairs. Do I think that's going to happen? The infrastructure part, yes. The rest of it, probably not. The worst case scenario, at least some of these elements. One, we have a kleptocracy, something that we've seen in a lot of other uh, countries. Remember that Donald Trump refused to say that he would uh, put all of his holdings into a blind trust and that he was going to let his family run them. So imagine every day decisions made in foreign and economic policy that have implications for Trump enterprises. And imagine all kinds of circumstances where America's national interest would move in that direction and his own family's economic interests would move in that direction. Which do you think would out in the end? I report you decide. Uh, that we have the war on Islam that, in effect, Donald Trump has promised. Now, one thing that would work against that, I noticed that his uh, pledge to basically put a halt on uh, Muslims coming into the country is no longer on his webpage, which may or may not mean anything. But you can imagine the rhetoric continuing, the torture re-emerging, and we've already had Tom Cotton, who has strongly supported him, saying waterboarding's not enough. We've got to go further than that. You can imagine his pledge to basically go after people and indiscriminately bomb and go after their families as well leading in turn to an increase in terrorist actions on American soil and leading from there to a form of martial law probably run by Rudy Giuliani. Uh, now, that's a worst-case scenario, but I'll tell you, we're now living in a world where worst-case scenarios are not necessarily fanciful scenarios. Uh, a world of mass deportations, uh, of an evisceration of large shares of what we have in government and a Supreme Court that ultimately, especially as we move from a 5-4 court to what may very well be before uh, a presidential term is over, a 6-3 or even a 7-2 uh, Supreme Court dominated by justices that would resemble uh, Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito, um, an elimination of all protections for voting rights, along with uh, the elimination of Roe v. Wade, uh, very possibly of same-sex marriages, and a whole series of other things in the social arena. Now, more than likely, we have enough constraint in the system to keep a lot of those worst-case elements from emerging. But as I look at the kinds of people who seem to be in line for significant positions in a Trump administration, when I looked on election eve and saw those that he pinpointed as his team, 
and knowing that his history is that it's the loyalists who come around and who run things. We're going to have an administration dominated by Rudy Giuliani, uh, Ben Carson, uh, Chris Christie, Steve Bannon, uh, who might well end up being chief of staff, but who at least is going to be a very close advisor, uh, and a host of others who would suggest that most of what we have thought would follow from mainstream policy, including mainstream foreign policy, won't be there. Finally, I noted in the Washington Post today that uh, they have uh, said that uh, there were regular contacts between officials in Russia and officials in the Trump campaign during the course of the campaign. Uh, Russians are giddy. They believe that the sanctions are going to be lifted soon and that their, uh, uh, their economy will begin to move. We know what Trump has said about NATO and his lack of concern uh, about the Baltic states. And I would expect that the Russian influence and leverage in the Middle East, we also know what he said about how they're the heroes here because they're going after ISIS, who cares about uh, Assad, that the influence of Russia in the Middle East is going to be back at least to where it was uh, decades ago. And that's going to be a challenge for the United States and for uh, all who are a part of or care about the region. That was Norman Ornstein. And now, Ambassador Dennis Ross. You know, in diplomacy, I've often said that when you do surprises, you usually drive your friends into the fetal position. And this is an election that I think has driven many people overseas into a fetal position. Uh, I think they're, they're a little bit like the stock market, where uncertainty is something that's unwelcome. Uh, and right now, they really don't know uh, what Donald Trump as president will do. Uh, and also, if you, I mean, it's not just that they don't know what he will do. It's that during the course of the campaign, there were enough statements that, that he made that were not consistent that gives them reason to have uncertainty and to, to be uneasy. Uh, <clears throat> Norm, I think, touched on something at the end. Think about the following. Uh, candidate Trump made it very clear it's not just that the United States is going to be great again. The United States is going to be strong again. But the United States is going to be strong again at the same time that he raised questions about NATO. At the same time that when he was asked, would you come to the defense of the Baltics, uh, he made it clear that, well, that would depend upon what they're contributing, which is ironic because actually if you look at the, the Baltic countries and NATO, they actually spend much more uh, of a percentage of their GDP on defense than almost anybody else. But the fact that you raise a question about whether you'll be there in the crunch raises questions on does any commitment mean anything? Bear in mind the following. Countries don't seek commitments for the easy times. You don't need a commitment in the easy times. You need a commitment for the hard times. You need a commitment for the crunch. You need, when you're, in a, when you're facing what is a potential devastation, you need to know that your friend is actually there. Uh, one of the things I think that a President Trump is going to need to do is in effect, reassure allies uh, and make it clear that he will actually be there. Uh, clarifying this particular point, I think, would be useful to do even before he becomes president. I mean, during the transition period, it offers him, I think, a very useful time to make it clear that NATO is important, that alliances matter, uh, that he understands that for us to be great in the world, we actually need others to be able to work with us. Uh, now, I also think 
when I look at the uh, at the Middle East, uh, candidate Trump said that he would destroy ISIS. Now, it's interesting that when you say you will destroy ISIS, the one thing absolutely that you need to destroy ISIS, you need the Sunni Arabs. You need the Sunni Arabs because when ISIS is liberated from certain areas, you need the Sunni areas, you need the Sunni Arabs to be able to replace them. You need the Sunni Arab states to help with reconstruction. You need them to help in terms of uh, the aftermath and helping in governance. And you need them most of all to discredit. We can't discredit ISIS, and you can't destroy ISIS unless ISIS gets discredited, and we can't discredit them. And obviously the Iranians can't discredit them. Uh, and here, uh, I'll raise another point that, that Norm made. You, we obviously know that candidate Trump went out of his way during the course of the campaign to offer, I think, a consistent set of comments uh, that were obviously highly favorable towards Vladimir Putin. Maybe the Russians are giddy right now in Moscow. Uh, the fact of the matter is that Trump would like to have better relations with Russia, and that's good. I mean, having better relations with Russia is fine, provided it's based on something, provided it's based on the Russians also having a set of responsibilities, provided it's based on it being a two-way street, uh, provided uh, the Russians understand that when they transgress certain basic global norms, there's a consequence for doing so. Now, again, let's go back to this notion of destroy ISIS. If you're going to destroy ISIS, as I said, you need the Sunnis. If, you, if you're going to have the Sunnis on your side, they're all going to be looking at what we do in Syria. Not what we do in Syria vis-a-vis -vis Raqqa, which is a part, obviously, of, of defeating ISIS, but what we do vis-a-vis -vis Assad. I mean, the... In the third debate, when candidate Trump basically said the Russians, Assad, and the Iranians are fighting ISIS and we should support them, that message went down like a lead balloon with the Sunni Arabs because they see a contest for power in the Middle East as a whole. They see a struggle of balance of power in the Middle East as a whole, and that struggle is with Iran and its use of Shia militias. Uh, and the more that the Russians have weighed in in Syria in a way that favors changing the fundamental balance of power within Syria, they don't see that as limited only to Syria. They see it as have imp having implications for the region as a whole. So if, in fact, President Trump wants to defeat ISIS and he needs the Sunnis, he's going to have to have a different approach to Syria. Now, what is he going to confront most likely at the very beginning of the administration? Clearly, Putin is trying to depopulate the eastern part of Aleppo by January 20th. He wants to take back for the regime the eastern part of Aleppo, which probably means another couple hundred thousand refugees. Now, that's what is likely to be faced at the very beginning of the administration. Uh, and I suspect that Putin at that point might very well announce, now it's time for a ceasefire. Now it's time to have a political process. Now, it's if the new administration is coming in and says, okay, we're prepared to work with you, there should be some ground rules. And some of the ground rules should be, if there's going to be a ceasefire, then it needs to be based on the very Security Council resolution, 2254, that the Russians supported, which, wasn't, which didn't just call for a cessation of hostilities. It called for uh, an end to the sieges. It called for uninhibited, unencumbered humanitarian corridors. Uh, 
it called for an 18-month transition period, meaning a transition period that would be a transition away from Assad. Uh, now, that's something the new administration, by the way, could say to, to Putin, the President Trump could say to Putin, okay, cease fire, fine, you want to have a political process, fine. The political process is based on the very Security Council resolution that you supported, uh, and we will sign up to that. We will work with all of our partners in the region to have them work with the opposition groups that they have influence on to completely fulfill those obligations. But this means, by the way, that when Assad violates those, as he has consistently done, this time there won't be a rhetorical response on our part. This time we're prepared to use standoff strikes. Tell Putin this. On now. Uh, to punish Assad for when he does that. Uh, and there will be a set of ground rules from now on that you don't get to violate these kinds of agreements with, a, with an impunity. Now, is a President Trump prepared to do that? That'll be a very good question. It will certainly become a kind of measure in the area as to whether or not he gets what the nature of the threats are in the area. If, in fact, he takes ISIS seriously, then, of course, then he has to have, he has to restore a relationship with our traditional Sunni partners. Now, he said, obviously, that he's going to scrap the JCPOA, but as David Horwitz said, at the same time, he also said he was going to enforce it. So you can't do both. You can do one or the other. Now, the truth is, if you scrap it up front, obviously, it's not only a bilateral agreement. It was a multilateral agreement or multilateral understanding. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, okay, if we say we're, we're walking away from it, the Iranians have a choice. If the other members of the 5 plus 1 who negotiated this say, well, we're not walking away from it, well, it suggests that uh, pressure from others is not going to be very high on the Iranians. The Iranians might well try to present themselves as a victim under these circumstances. Uh, and if they, if they decided to walk away from it at that point and then begin to start, re start restoring and rebuilding their centrifuges, start producing again uh, enriched uranium, uh, who would be blamed for that? Would they be blamed for it or would we be blamed for it? Uh, and if, again, they begin to move towards producing fissile material <clears throat> and even weapons grade, is a President Trump then prepared to take military action to stop that? His whole approach towards the Middle East, at least during the campaign, suggested being tough on ISIS, but actually really wanted to kind of walk away from the region. So here again, as a president, uh, he's going to be confronting some hard choices that as a candidate he didn't. Now, to be fair to him, it's not entirely unusual for candidates to say one thing during a campaign and then come in, find that their president uh, have to make hard decisions and choose to make responsible decisions. Uh, and if I follow the logic of what Norm was suggesting about Best case and worst case, a lot would depend upon who are the people that he has, <clears throat> excuse me, that he has around him. Uh, someone like a, a Bob Corker, uh, a serious guy. Uh, and, you know, I think that he would probably, if, uh, if he has a kind of responsibility for foreign policy and national security, then presumably he would push him in, I think, the more responsible area. So I think as a broad rubric, it pays to be humble at this point. Uh, not only because nobody predicted that he would be president, uh, but also because there are enormous uncertainties out there, 
And we don't really know what he would do and what he's going to do as president uh, because uh, what he says as candidate didn't provide us uh, a whole lot of guidelines in that respect. Now, let me just kind of uh, conclude with uh, maybe one last kind of point. And it goes back to what I think David Horowitz was raising. Uh, I thought David Horowitz made a really interesting point about Prime Minister Netanyahu that it actually allowed Prime Minister Netanyahu to position himself, uh, particularly on the settlement issue, between the Obama administration uh, and uh, the, the settler constituency uh, that is actually part of his, of his coalition. Uh, and the fact is, uh, he didn't satisfy either. He, there was continued settlement activity, but not nearly as much, uh, oftentimes, as the administration portrayed and also not nearly enough to satisfy uh, you know, the elements of his coalition. You know, one of the things that, uh, that in the end Israel will have to contend with uh, is what it wants from the United States in the relationship. Now, you know, I'll go back to something that David Ben-Gurion said when he first met John Kennedy. John Kennedy met David Ben-Gurion in May of 1961 uh, in New York. And Kennedy, when he, the first thing Kennedy said to him when he came in was, you know, I won by a narrow margin and no small part. Uh, I probably won because of the Jewish vote. So I owe you something. And David Ben-Gurion said to him, what you owe me is a strong America. Now, I would say that Israel and most of the Sunni Arab states who have been our traditional partners are looking for a strong America a strong America that remains in the Middle East, that doesn't withdraw from the Middle East, a strong America that recognizes that there is a struggle for balance of power in the region, and it's a struggle between radical Islamists, Sunni and Shia, particularly Iran and the Shia militias, uh, and non-Islamists. We have a big stake in that. Uh, we also have two developments in the region right now that with all of its uncertainties, actually give us some assets to work with. One is that Israel has a relationship now with uh, most of the Sunni Arab states that is unprecedented. While, it's, while the cooperation that is going on is largely below the radar screen, that doesn't make it any less real. There is a convergence of strategic interests that they are practically acting on uh, in tangible ways. It remains below the radar screen because of the Palestinian issue. And unless there's some way to deal with it, it will probably continue to remain below the radar screen. And yet, this convergence of very practical cooperation has implications for us, both as we deal with the need to contain what the Iranians are doing, particularly with the Shia militias, but also potentially even on the Palestinian issue. Because the Palestinians at this point are too weak, too divided, too focused on succession, particularly in the West Bank with Abu Mazen to really be able to do anything on their own when it comes to the peace issue. And they might need an Arab cover to do something, but the Israelis also need that Arab cover. Because at this point, most Israelis believe that if they make any concessions towards the Palestinians, they won't get anything in return from the Palestinians. So what they would get in return would have to come from the Arab states. So this first development in the region that could be useful for an America if it seeks to remain strong in the region and pursue what is ultimately in our interest in the region, this is a development that is a real asset uh, that, in a sense, has emerged in many ways uh, 
despite the Obama administration, uh, and it is something that could be built on by the new administration. There's a second development, and that's the, the transformation that's taking place within Saudi Arabia. Uh, when I visited there, uh, one of the senior officials we met with said, welcome to our revolution disguised as economic reform. Uh, and think about the following. We have never had a successful model of development or modernization uh, in the Arab world. Because of that, we've, since Nasser's time, we've had secular leaders like Nasser who claimed that they were going to be the ones to deliver the region, to restore greatness lost to a region. Uh, and that long stream of pretenders from Nasser to the Muslim Brotherhood to ISIS, they all claim they have the answer to restore this region to greatness, to prevent it from lagging behind. Uh, well, obviously, those who want to return to the, you know, to the 7th century are unlikely to be able to deliver that. But the fact is, what is happening in Saudi Arabia promises to create, for the first time, a successful model uh, of development and modernization, which means it has implications not just for stability within Saudi Arabia, it has implications for the region. We have a big stake in their success. Here are two developments that if managed the right way, taken advantage of in the right way by the new administration, could give us a significant capacity to cope with all the uncertainty of this region right now. And I hope that the new administration will opt for Norm's best case and not for Norm's worst case. This has been Near East Policycast from the Washington Institute. Production assistance comes from multimedia editor Neil Orman. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music